All right, the youth can be dismissed for Sunday school. Follow the crew behind you out to the left. The rest of us, go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to the book of Romans. If uh, you don't have a Bible, there should be one on a chair within reach. Somewhere, you might have to look around a tad and turn to Romans. Romans chapter 6, towards the end of your Bible, after the book of Acts, before 1 Corinthians. We... Um, I've been in a verse-by-verse study in Romans, took a break for a bit. We uh, stopped at the end of chapter 5 before Christmas and did a little mini-series on Christian foundations, finished that last week, so we'll pick up where we left off in Romans chapter 6. And a welcome to y'all, good to see you, especially those of you who are newer with us, thank you for gathering with us, good to have you. Romans chapter 6, the title of this morning's message is Dead to Sin. Dead to sin. And, and Romans 6 <clears throat> is going to be sort of its own mini-series, speaking of mini-series, uh, really a, a mini-series within the book on the topic of sanctification. Sanctification. What happens to a person after we receive justification by faith in Christ, after the grace of regeneration, salvation, sanctification. <clears throat> Well, Martin Luther was born in 1483 in what is present-day Germany. And as a young man, uh, he was set to become a lawyer and made a change one day and decided he needed to become a monk to earn his way to heaven. And he became a monk in one of the most rigid Roman Catholic monasteries of the day, of the Augustinian order. And as Rome taught, uh, Luther, before he put his faith in Christ, believed in the, the catastrophic error that justification or right standing with God was achieved gradually, if possible, through works, through moral exertion. That entrance into heaven had to be earned through rigorous obedience. That's what many believe then. Uh, Luther almost killed himself working so hard trying to earn his way to heaven. It was sometime around 1519, though, that as he was reading the Bible, and reading the Bible was rare in those days because there weren't, the printing press had just been invented, but it was against the law to translate the Bible out of Latin or from Greek or Hebrew. And William Tyndale, who was a contemporary of Luther, uh, was burned at the stake for translating it into English. So Luther is, Luther is reading the Bible, and he's reading Romans, among other books, and his eyes were opened to the gospel, the good news of justification, what we studied at length in Romans 3 to 5. The justification, remember justify or justification, uh, the, one of the most important phrases in the Christian faith, it means God's act of declaring the sinner instant, instantly and permanently and irreversibly in right standing, forgiven of sin, and having imputed the righteousness of Christ. Luther writes this of his conversion. He's wrestling with this phrase that is, that's at the beginning of Romans in Romans 1.17, that phrase, the righteousness of God, and he misunderstood it. He thought that the righteousness of God that's in Romans 1.17 meant the righteousness whereby God is furious at Luther until Luther does enough good works to kind of earn his way into God's good graces. 
again, severe error. And so Luther writes this, quote, I began, to, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith, declares us righteous. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates, about 1519. So Luther then, uh, having been saved uh, out of Romanism, begins preaching and writing extensively uh, and eagerly about the gospel of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone. And so God uses Luther, among others, to launch the Protestant Reformation, which has been the greatest movement of God since, since the book of Acts. Entire societies were transformed. Uh, educating uh, kids and these kind of things really was revived. All this happened consequent of the Reformation. But as Luther preached justification, some in, in Roman Catholicism began to accuse him of something called antinomianism. And hold on to that phrase, uh, grab that phrase, write it down if you're a note-taker, anti-nomianism, anti-against, nomian or namas, the law, God's moral law. Uh, the idea that you can just say, well, ah, sure, I believe in Jesus, and then keep living in disobedience to God's word. So in other words, Rome is listening to Luther, and they're saying, Luther, you preach that any person, no matter how sinful they've lived in their life, that if they turn from their sin and they place faith, they place faith in Christ and their confidence is in the life of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus in their place, the resurrection of Jesus, that if they place their faith in him alone, all their sin, even the ones they haven't yet committed, Past, present, and future is forgiven, and they stand permanently in right standing before God, perfectly righteous. They're going to heaven, even though they might still struggle with sin. And so they're saying to Luther, Luther, that is crazy of you to preach that. And they issued in the Council of Trent, which was about 12 years of councils following the Reformation to refute it, they anathematize the doctrine of justification, meaning they declare that if you believe it, you're condemned. But they're saying... Previously that, they're saying, Luther, if you tell people that, you will just encourage them to abuse God's grace. If you tell people that just by faith alone and Christ alone, they're going to heaven and not by the works, that will encourage and incite them to just say, oh, great, I have this, I have this fire insurance and because and I believed on Jesus, I can just live like a sinner now and and and." and sow my wild oats and I'll be fine. And so they accuse Luther of antinomianism. Of course, he did no such thing. And he refuted it. Interestingly, 1,500 years before Luther, the Apostle Paul, whom God used to inerrantly give us the book of Romans, preached the same gospel, which if you've been with us, We've been studying verse by verse from Romans 3.21 to the end of chapter 5, justification 
by faith alone and Christ alone. And doubly interesting, the Apostle Paul in the first century was accused of the exact same thing as Luther, antinomianism. Not by Rome, because Roman Catholicism didn't come into existence until later in the 500s, but by a group of individuals with kind of categorically speaking similar erroneous doctrine, Judaizers. Judaizers teaching again that justification is by works, works and faith. And so, our, so they are hearing in the Apostle Paul's day, and Paul kind of had a dramatic conversion uh, out of Judaism similar to Luther. And he was enslaved to this system of justification by works and was one of the greatest uh, in that system, he says in Philippians 3. But more to the point, as the Judaizers were accusing Paul of this, he then, God uses him to write Romans 6. And so Romans chapter 6, especially the beginning, our verses this morning, is Paul's divinely inspired response to the accusation of antinomianism. The idea that, well, if you just tell people they're, that, 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 that they're declared righteous in Christ, God looks at them as, they're clo- as if they're clothed in Christ and his righteousness, they're just going to live it up and abuse the grace of God. And Paul says, nope, not happening. And Romans 6 is the response. That is the context. And God gives us this wonderful, meaty passage. If you thought Romans 3, 4, or 5 was meaty, it, the, 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 the portions increase uh, in Romans chapter 6. So follow along as I read. I'm actually going to start back in verse uh, 20 of chapter 5 to give some context there. Remember the chapter and verse delineations weren't added till uh, probably a thousand or a little few more years than that after God gave us the scriptures. Romans 5 verse 20 and I'll read through verse 11 of chapter 6. God's inerrant word reads, now the law came in, speaking of God's law and commandments, so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And praise God for that. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been justified from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Verse 11, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. The reading of God's word. Well, there's Paul's answer to the false charges of antinomianism and all the way through the rest of chapter 6. 
So Romans, just a reminder, we've been out of it, is considered, uh, has been considered throughout the centuries by many as the most important book of the Bible. All scripture is God, is God breathed and profitable and essential, but if there's kind of one that stands out, it would be Romans, because it explains in slow, meaty, thorough detail the solution to the greatest problem in the universe. How can fallen, imperfect human beings, how can sinful humanity possibly ever be in right standing with the holy God and the just creator? How in the universe could that be? Romans explains it. And so remember just kind of a the, the outline and the flow of Romans. Romans is divided up into about five parts. Chapter 1, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, is this, it's, it's addressing the issue of why do we need Christ so bad? Why do we need justification so bad? Because we have fallen way short of God's law. And then chapter 3, of verse 21, all the way through the end of chapter 5, is God solving the problem, God providing justification. Uh, and we looked at that, it took us quite a while to get through all of that. I think we did maybe, you know, 12 sermons alone in chapter 4. And then Romans 6 through 8 is, okay, having been justified by faith, then what happens? sanctification happens. We're changed. And then, of course, Romans 9 to 11, kind of the behind the scenes, the, the sovereignty of God in bringing salvation. And then chapters 12 to the end of the book is life lived in the gospel together. Our life together in light of justification. So, so to, kind of, to, to put that another way, chapters 1 through 3 is condemnation. Chapters 3 to 5 justification, chapters 6 to 8, sanctification, and then on and on. So our need for the gospel, Romans 1 through 3, the provision of the gospel, Romans 3 to 5, how the gospel changes everybody who believes it, chapters 6 through 8, the sovereignty of God in the gospel, 9 through 11, and then Romans 12 to the, to the end of the book is life together in the gospel various ways to think about it. 37,000 foot view, diving in now deep. So, now, here's the issue. How, what happens to a person when they are truly saved, when they savingly believe on Christ, when they are justified by faith, when they are born again, when they experience the miracle of regeneration, when they become a Christian, those things are all synonymous to become a Christian, to experience the regeneration of the Spirit, which we looked at a little bit in Romans 5, to be justified by faith, to be saved, forgiven, whatever you want to call it, all synonymous. It's the same thing. Well, then what, hap then what happens? We'll see two points. We're just going to barely get through verses 1 to 2. Verses 1 to 2 is kind of like the, the twin pillars as you enter into Romans 6 on sanctification. Just two points. Number one, for our outline, the accusation. Number one, the accusation. And the accusation is justification appears antinomian. Number one, the accusation. Justification appears antinomian. And our second point, number two, the response. 
in response to the accusation, the certainty of sanctification. The certainty of sanctification. So number one, the accusation that justification appears antinomian. The gospel appears antinomian, in other words. And the response, number two, the certainty of sanctification for every believer, if you want to add to that. So number one, let's get into it. The accusation. Justification appears, it is not actually, but it appears antinomian. So after explaining justification for, for two, almost three chapters, there are objections. Verse 1, look at chapter 6, verse 1. So Paul hears the objections. Well, what shall we say then? And he, and he kind of recites the objection. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? So people hear this gospel. They hear most recently what he says in chapter 5, verse 20. Look back there real quick. Where he says, look, where sin increases or sin abounds, grace increases all the more. Speaking of those who have put faith in Christ. And that's a wonderful promise. And we just sing about it. That as much as for those who have been justified by faith, for those who have been regenerate, who have put faith in Christ, God is saying, as high as your sin is, my grace overflows it. My grace floods it. There's no sin too great that God's mercy can't overflow and cover. And we praise God for that. That's the gospel. Because our forgiveness isn't depending on our performance, but on the death and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So, if we're, so they hear this, and you're antinomian, Paul. So that kind of tells us something. If we're correctly explaining the gospel of justification by faith alone and Christ alone, it should almost sound antinomian. Because when it's been correctly preached in the past, they accuse them of that. Paul, Luther, among others. It should almost be like, whoa, 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 put the brakes on. If you tell people that, they're just going to say, great, I can just go live in my sin. I don't have to change. I don't have to make adjustments. I don't have to make any hard decisions. I don't have to part ways with the sins and the old ways that I like. <laughs> Wonderful, how convenient. They accuse Paul. They accuse Luther, and they might accuse you. Now, as we consider this accusation, let's be reminded of the depths of the gospel of justification just to refresh ourselves. Paul said, I came knowing 1 Corinthians 2.2, Jesus Christ and him crucified. So God is holy, 1 Samuel 2.2. There's no one holy like the Lord. Habakkuk 1.13 says, God's eyes are too pure to, to even gaze favorably upon sin. Uh, he's also omniscient. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows the things that we forget. This includes our sin. Now imagine, I want you to imagine with me that God uh, had, had a notebook and he had written down every single way in which you and I had violated one of his commandments. And he'd write it down, whatever it was, covetousness, sexual sin, adultery, writes it down and writes the punishment next to it, condemnation. Remember the commandments are, love God, never put any, love him perfectly, never put anything above him, never worship anything above him, never take his name in vain, prioritize worshiping him, honor your parents, sexual purity, never take anything that's not yours, never murder, never lie, always be thankful. Right? Like commands one through four of the Ten Commandments are towards God, commandments five through ten are towards people. 
Or Jesus sums it up in Matthew 22, 37 to 39. Every single one of your thoughts, motivations, intentions, deeds, and words needs to honor God perfectly and love people perfectly. So God has his notebook. Every time, imagine that we've, that we've failed at, thought, word, and deed for a whole life, he writes it down, writes it down, writes it down. And for me, it'd be a really heavy, thick notebook. Fast forward, we think of verses like Revelation 20, verse 12, which say that there'll be a future day where Christ actually opens the books. And people are judged fairly only upon what they did, not by what happened to them. Just what they did and how they failed his commands. Psalm 9, 8 says of God, he will judge the world in righteousness, meaning perfectly right according to his standard judgment. Judgment is a must. God is fair. He's not like some corrupt district attorney that just turns a blind eye and lets criminals kind of go by. A little slap on the wrist, you shouldn't have done that. That's not, God will never do that because he's just. He cannot. Thankfully, God didn't leave us on his own. God the Son comes down from heaven, lives perfectly. His notebook was empty. There's not a drop of ink in it. Thoughts, intentions, words, and deeds. Empty notebook. Jesus Christ. Obviously, he had to be God to do this. Obviously, he is God. No one could do that. This is why Jesus was qualified to go to the cross. Now imagine for all who believe, for all who have put faith in Christ, the day that Jesus historically hangs on the cross, imagine that God nails your notebook up there and just hammers it there on the cross. And as Jesus is suffering, blood is draining down on it, and that notebook is fixed to that rugged cross. Jesus is suffering. He's dying. For six hours, he hung there, and every breath he took, in crucifixion, you would usually die of asphyxiation, where your rib cage would collapse in and you couldn't breathe. Jesus, to, to breathe for six hours, is pushing himself up on the nails to expand his rib cage so that he could breathe. This is his suffering, and if people were to ask, why is that happening? And it would be because for that ledger, that notebook, for everything in there to be wiped away, someone's got to pay for it because forgiveness must be just. It's not a sweeping. It's a punishing as a substitute. So he takes his last breath. He dies. His body is taken down. And that notebook with my name on it and everybody's name on it who would go to heaven, all the sins, the whole notebook is drenched in his blood. And as it were, all the sins are wiped away by his blood and washed away such that the notebook is now empty. Colossians 2.14 says, He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In love, Jesus Christ, the God-man, cancels the infinite debt we incurred. He was judged for our sins. Our sins were imputed or credited to him such that God crushes him as if he had committed everything written down in that notebook. So that's half of salvation or justification that we've been studying. The other, see, the, the other half is critical because the forgiveness of sins gets you out of the infinite moral red and into neutral. But you need a positive righteousness of obedience, a record of obedience to God's command to get into heaven. You, you need another book. You, you need another book with not infractions, but all the ways you've perfectly obeyed God and thought, word, and deed in nature and conformed to his law. 
Before salvation, I never had such a book. Because Romans 8, 4, 5, and 6 says it's impossible for the unsaved to please God. However, Jesus, the good news is, he had that book. While his book of sins was empty and dry, the book of his righteousness and his obedience is filled. And so what happens in justification, as we studied, God imputes our sin to him on the cross, notebook washed away that was filled, and then he takes Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' full book, and he credits or imputes that book to the life of the sinner instantly, the moment they put faith and bow the knee in belief to Jesus Christ. It's double imputation, and that is justification. So, when we put faith in Christ, his obedience... His moral resume is credited to us, and God looks at us as if we lived his life permanently. This isn't some foolish looking the other way. Jesus actually had to live for us and die for us. And so that's how it works. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ that Luther preached and Paul preached and we preach. So step back and consider that for a moment by childlike surrendered faith, by a knee bowing of the heart, and trust and in confidence in Jesus. The millions of times we've thought thoughts unworthy of God's grace, spoken words unworthy of God's holiness, committed deeds unworthy of the blazing, crisp righteousness of God. God says simply by faith, all of it's nailed to the cross. And I've credited Jesus' life to you. Permanently, irreversibly. And not only that, that would be enough if that happened and then we just died. But we die and enter into the heaven that Jesus earned for us, that we could never earn for ourselves. Infinite bliss, a curseless, deathless, sadless, diseaseless, joyful eternity will go straight to heaven. What if someone lived 200 years or 2,000 years, say someone could live, and on their deathbed, and say for 2,000 years, for 3,000 years, They lived just in vile, aggressive, flagrant disobedience and disregard to the law of God. And then say three minutes before they die, on their deathbed, they're finally struck by the grace of God and hammered by the Holy Spirit that they realize how they have rigorously violated God's law their whole life and their entire life. They have never given any thought or care to God's word. And then they're struck by their sins and they're crushed by the conviction of the Spirit. And then they realize and they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. His life was perfect. His death was in their place. His resurrection was real. And he stands at the right hand of the throne of God and they put faith in him and then they die 90 seconds, 10 seconds later. What happens to them? Answer, they go straight to heaven as if they had lived Jesus' life all 3,000 years or 3 million if they could live it. Three million years of sins canceled out and imputed to Christ and his righteousness imputed to them. That's the gospel. That's the true gospel. And it's the true and it's the only way to get to heaven. And that's why it's called good news. This is why Luther and Paul were accused of antinomianism. And you might be too. But this is the true gospel nevertheless. Have you believed it? Have you believed the gospel? Why would anyone not believe this gospel? Why in the universe would someone hear this good news and think, no, I I have a better way to get to heaven? No, no, you don't have a better way. 
That's not happening. And it's wrong of a person to think that. And God will hold them accountable. But in the meantime, Christ's arms are held open. With this gospel of justification by faith. So this is, it's understandable why some would object, object to that. And they're saying, Paul, if you tell people that, people are just going to say, well, I'm set. Live it up. I mean, it's, like, it's, it's almost like this. Imagine a wealthy father who tells his 23-year-old son, son, I want you to know something. No matter how much financial debt you incur throughout your life, I'll pay it off. And the son says, well, I got a good idea. I'm going to get my buddies and my credit cards and just run it up. We're going to buy ATVs and houses and, and cars and boats and vacations. And he tells his friends, guys, guys, the more debt I incur, the more dad will just cover it and pay it off. And then his friends say, well, that's so loving of your dad to do that. Let's incur astronomical amount of debt because the more debt we incur, the more, God's, the more your dad's love will be shown to you. Where are those credit cards? This is the idea here. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. This is sort of the antinomian accusation. Antinomianism in action. So the big question is, this is the big question then. How do we respond to that? More importantly, how does God respond to that? And, and keeping that going, the implication of that, can a person who has been saved continue to live in habitual sin? Is that possible? This is what Romans 6 is about. Is there such thing as a carnal Christian, in other words? Is there such thing as somebody who has believed upon Jesus as Savior, and then years later they confess him and surrender to him as Lord? Is there such thing as someone who has been saved, they've experienced regeneration, they've put faith in Jesus Christ, they've experienced justification, they're a believer, but they just, they kind of continue to live in uninterrupted, unrepentant patterns of sins. Is that a thing? Is that a real thing? And Romans 6 says, no way. Matter of fact, let's see what Paul says here. Number two, the response to the accusation, the certainty of sanctification. Look at verse two. How does Paul answer that? Number, number two, verse two. Look there. May it never be. Your translation might say, God forbid. May it never be. This is the response. Number two, the certainty of sanctification for every believer. The response to the antinomian accusation, we'll take the rest of our time to kind of flesh this out in just introducing, just dipping our toes into chapter 6. The response is the certainty of sanctification for everybody who has experienced justification, regeneration, salvation, come to faith in Christ, whatever you want to say. Verse 2, may it never be, the apostle says. In the Greek language, first century Greek, it is the strongest possible statement of negation that existed in the Mediterranean world. Paul, it's, it's like he is horrified at the idea. There's no probably not, maybe not, it's, not, it's unlikely. There's none of that in the statement, beloved. It is absolutely not. May it never be. 
so why may it never be? And then very briefly, look at ver- end of verse 2, he answers with another question, a rhetorical one, of course. Look there. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So this is the response. Will somebody continue just to abuse God's grace and live in sin? How shall we who died to sin still live in it? The we who died to sin refers to the we of the whole context, believers who've been justified by faith. He says we died to sin. This is the main idea of chapter 6. Everything else in chapter 6, from verse 3 all the way to verse 23, is just going to explain in different ways what, what, what that's all about. That a genuine believer, and by the way, Scripture has two types of believers, we understand that, in uh, John chapter 2, 23 to 25, and then in James 2, 19 and following, there are what is called false believers. You also see, this in, see these in Matthew chapter 13, verse 20 to 22 in the parable of the soils. Okay. Um, there are false believers, but a genuine believer they have died to sin, and everything in chapter 6 flushes that out. So that word death, die, die, they've died to sin. The word death, die, or died appears 20 times in chapter 6 alone. Kind of tells you what, what Paul's hammering down here and, and just drilling down deep as far as what happens to an individual who is saved. They have died to sin. We understand this raises questions. We're not going to get to them, all, all of them today. We'll get to very few, if any, today. Questions like, does this mean a Christian never sins again? Well, of course it doesn't mean that. Romans 7 is in the Bible. We'll get to that later. Nevertheless, it certainly means, die to sin, it certainly means the believer is no longer living in sin. It's an impossible case. It's the difference between the believer and the unbeliever isn't that anyone's better, salvation's a gift. But as far as sanctification, it's the difference between a guy who is walking around with shackles that he can't get off of himself and just super heavy chains, and then another guy who's walking down a street that has some potholes in it. Prior to Christ, we're like the guy with the shackles. Uh, We are chained to sin. We can't not sin. Again, Romans 8, 4 to about 8. Jeremiah 17, 9 as well. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. We can only sin. But consequent of regeneration, those shackles are, are just chucked and broken. And now we're kind of walking down like a street with some potholes. And now and then, we, we, we find ourselves tripping up. But it's not an uninterrupted, unbroken, flagrant pattern. We trip up at times. We must, it's so important, that in thinking about this concept, we let the text of the Bible be the authority and not sentiment, experience, feelings, or so much error in contemporary American evangelicalism. We have to let the text speak. How can we who die to sin still live in it? And of course, the implied answer is we cannot. And we will not. When did believers experience this death to sin? Well, obviously, it's not prior to faith in Christ. We we understand that. 
But at faith in Christ, it's that instant. Our, 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 the instant we put faith in him, our relationship to sin is permanently changed. We die to sin and are made alive to Christ. The moment of salvation, of justification. The moment you become a believer. You might not remember the exact moment. You don't have to. That's not really consequential. What's consequential is faith in Jesus Christ, that we, that we put faith in him. However, important theological note, and by the way, Paul loves precision in theology. You can see him going back and forth. It's this, not this. He'll do that all through the chapter. And so we must love it too. God didn't just give us a fortune cookie for his word. He gave us 66 books that are chopped with meat, not the least of which is Romans. So justification begins sanctification, but justification isn't the power and, and, and the the energy to be dead to sin. Justification is God's legal declaration in heaven. Think of it like this way. Sometimes people change citizenship or nationality. My great-grandfather uh, was Vietnamese. He was 100% ethnic Vietnamese. He lived in Vietnam. And in, in the 1920s, he moved from Vietnam to France sometime in that era. And, and then he became a French citizen. And when he changed citizenship... He didn't look like a native French person necessarily or act like one or have the manners of a French person. But he went down to whatever it was, the consulate, and the officials signed the paper, and boom, the stamp, you are now a French citizen. It was instantaneous, permanent, irreversible. That's how justification is. The instant we put faith in Christ, boom, God kind of slams the gavel down, as it were, in heaven, and we're righteous, having gone from condemned sinner to righteous saint by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, when my great-grandfather became a citizen, he didn't all of a sudden become super French in his thoughts, his character, his nature, his deeds. That, that change of citizenship was, you know, was important as it was. It was official. It didn't change his mannerisms. Okay, that's justification. It was a change of standing. So, so it's not justification that causes that death to sin and empowers a new life. It's the other term that we looked at in Romans 5. It's regeneration. And if you're not, really, if you're not super familiar with that term, make sure you, you write that down or, or, or keep, that, keep that fixed in your memory. Regeneration. When everyone who puts faith in Christ gets saved, they experience regeneration. This explains, like, why did so-and-so, you know, they were used to be enslaved to the sin, or they were like this, and this unpleasant thing, and that, and then all of a sudden, they just changed. They didn't become perfect, but it's like they got lift off out of that destructive behavior. How did that happen? How did they change? Why did their desires, their wants, their motivations, their deeds change? Answer, regeneration. Jesus talks about this in John 3, 3 to 8, Titus 3 as well. Regeneration is the very real miracle that every person experiences who becomes a Christian, who experiences justification, where the soul that was dead, the spiritual nature that was dead, is made alive. Regeneration is that miracle, the miraculous change of nature. Jesus calls it the new birth in John 3. Sometimes, as Luther said, born again. The spiritual birth where the soul that was previously dead to Christ and alive to sin is instantly changed to dead to sin and alive to Christ. The, the individual who previously, they had zero desire to read the Bible, 
love the Bible and come under the Bible, all of a sudden they have this hunger to read the Bible, embrace the Bible, know about it, and surrender their lives to it. This is regeneration, a very real but invisible power from God on high, from heaven, where the Holy Spirit gives you the new birth. And this is this happens in an instant, and this is what happens that causes the individual to be dead to sin. Becoming a Christian is not deciding, you know what, I'm going to check a new political and a new religious box when those goofy surveys come, come out. No, it's, it's a power from on high of regeneration, of a miracle in the soul that is unexplainable except by God. And we can't force it in ourselves any more than we can force ourselves to be born. So this is the death to sin, Romans 6, verse 11. Look there, kind of saying it the same way, Romans 6, 11, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We've died to sin. Some of us have had terrible things happen to us, wretched things done to us, and it's hard to handle those things. It's hard to respond rightly to those things. It's hard maybe to not be furious about those things. The good news is, God says you're de-chained from that. We're dead to sin. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. That's death to sin. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself up for me. So, regeneration, a one-time, miraculous miracle that God does by the Holy Spirit. The moment of salvation and justification, God does it all. It's called monergistic. Mon, one, ergistic, energy, God doing the work. God alone does the work. But Romans 6 then fleshes out the consequence of regeneration and that death to sin, which is what is called sanctification. Sanctification is the always inevitable consequence of regeneration and justification and faith in Christ. Sanctification always follows regeneration and justification. You cannot divide them in two, as Calvin said, any more than you can cut Jesus in half as a person. It's one package. And it's almost not helpful to speak of these as individual things because it's like, well, maybe that'll happen. Maybe that guy will experience sanctification, but maybe one Christian won't. No way. We're, 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 when we become united with Christ, salvation is becoming united with Christ, and so it all happens. We get all his goodness. Back to the illustration of my great-grandfather. He becomes a citizen. Like justification, Boom. Hammer down. Now imagine, in the ensuing months and years, as he did, as he lives in France, he begins to embrace the culture. He learns French. He learns the charcuterie and all the delicacies of Camembert and Bordeaux and all the other yummy stuff. And he starts to conform his character to a French person. That's like sanctification. It results from, from time and, and change in being there. So, let's kind of summarize this. We're justified by faith in Christ, declared righteous in an instant, our sin imputed to Jesus Christ, his righteousness imputed to us, 
instantly, irreversibly, one time. Justification doesn't change your nature. Regeneration does. Regeneration is like the birth of a child, one time, not repeated in the life of the child. Right? Justification would be like, that child is this person, the paperwork, it's official, certificate of birth, their name, their weight, all that stuff. Boom, one time. Sanctification would be like the growth of the child, the physiological transformation, which is continual. Obviously, it happens after birth. Sanctification follows regeneration like the physiological growth of a child follows its birth. Sanctification is ongoing, not one time. It begins the the moment we experience regeneration. Regeneration is a one-time thing. It marks the day we die to sin. So then Romans 6.2, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Implied answer, we cannot, not because we're great, not because we've learned all these cool new rules and we've decided by our own strength to become better people because we're so great. No, but because God has worked the miracle in the soul of regeneration. And they're alive now. They have life. John Murray in his excellent commentary says, quote, what the apostle has in view is the once for all definitive breach with sin which constitutes the identity of the believer. A believer cannot therefore live in sin. If a man lives in sin, he's not a believer, end quote. So the text began with the accusation of antinomianism and the answer to sum it up in one word to that accusation is sanctification sanctification. Do you see how that answers the accusation? They're not. The person who has been justified by faith, who's been regenerated, is not going to abuse grace and say, we can just keep sinning because we're forgiven. Because God has wrought a miracle in them and sanctification will result. Without which, justification, regeneration, salvation and belief have not happened. Romans 6 is absolutely clear about this. Antinomianism is refuted by Romans 6. We cannot compartmentalize salvation. It's impossible. It cannot be compartmentalized any more than you can get like a portion of Jesus and salvation. It's impossible. So, just since we're moving on from justification, I just want to make sure it's just super, super clear. Let me just give a couple of differences between justification and sanctification. Did I say we're moving on from sanctification? All right. If you were to draw this on a piece of paper, say you put like justification up here, sanctification here, line, line. Justification is a one-time event. God declares us righteous. Sanctification, ongoing event. God makes us more righteous. Justification is a change of legal standing before God. Sanctification is a change of our character from the heart, conforming us to Christ. Justification happens in an instant, the moment of salvation. Sanctification begins the moment of salvation and continues till death. 
Justification is the one-time imputation of righteousness. Sanctification is the continual impartation, impartation of righteousness. All whom God justifies, he sanctifies. This is what Paul is beginning to say. Another way to picture it is this. This uh, John Stott, uh, who went to be with the Lord a number of years ago, gives a helpful illustration in his commentary. He says, he says it like this. He says, the life of a believer is a two-volume, like a two-volume book set. Two volumes. The life of everyone ever born begins with one volume. Volume one is life before Christ. Life apart from regeneration. Life previous to salvation. Life enslaved to ourselves, to our own glory, to our sin, whatever it might be, however sin might look like. In Romans 1.18 to 32, from 2.1 to the end of chapter 2, sometimes it looked like outward flagrant immorality. Sometimes it looked like, looks like a nice external morality, but inside we're still dead. This is volume one of our life is the old man. Not old as an age, but old before Christ for every believer, captive to the world's religion. Everyone begins in volume one. Volume two is the person who puts faith in Christ. That volume begins, very beginning of the book, justification, regeneration, faith, belief in Jesus Christ. That's like the very first page of volume two for the believer. And that isn't repeated in the rest of the volume. Now the rest of the story is sanctification. Telling the story of what happens now in the impartation of righteousness. Life consequent of salvation, becoming a new creation. Volume two details that as we progressively become conformed to Christ until we're taken to heaven, then it's over. It just starts actually. So, if you've been saved, you're in volume two. There's no going back to volume one. You died to sin. You can no more return to volume one than a 30-year-old man can go back and be physiologically two years old again. Or chronologically two. You can't do that. It's impossible. Now that 30-year-old and a less noble mama might act at times like that, but they cannot go back and permanently be and live in that. It's not possible. You cannot go back to volume one. This is an introduction to what God has done for us as described in Romans 6, sanctification. So we need to ask ourselves, which volume of life am I in? Have, have I been saved? Have I begun volume two by the grace of God? Not my works. This isn't our works. Have you been justified? Have you been saved and experienced the grace of God? Have you experienced the new birth? Have you finally come to the point where you see volume one, the old man, that old enslavement to self and being my own Lord? It's garbage. I need to turn from that. I need to be saved. That's condemnation. Have you come to that point? Why would you wait any longer, friend? Why would you delay throwing yourself on the mercy of God and Jesus Christ? Well, I mean, logically, there's no 
objective reason that, begin, that can be given to justify delaying throwing anchor into Christ and putting faith in Christ to begin volume two and to begin the new life and to be unchained from self and enslavement to myself. Why would you wait any longer? You're not, there's no good reason, dear friend. Only filthy rags. Oh, God is so merciful. He, he is so merciful. Where your sin abounds, his grace abounds all the more. And you, if you would put faith in Christ and bow the knee of your heart to him this instant, you don't need a priest, you need Christ. If you would do that, not only will you be forgiven, declared righteous, you'll be de-chained as we're going to study in Romans 6. You'll be freed from enslavement to self and the darkness of sin. And you'll realize that Christ is so much better. That to live is Christ. And on top of that, death is merely just an entrance into gain, an unspeakable gain. I, I just, I call you, if you haven't bowed the knee to Jesus, don't delay this. Don't delay it any longer. His nail-pierced hands are just wide open. And he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Father in heaven, thank you for the love of Christ. Thank you for the great, great love of Christ. Thank you for the merciful love of Christ, the gracious love of Christ. Thank you for the free love of Christ, received freely as a gift by faith. Father, I pray that if any of us in here have yet to bow the knee, that we would have that much-needed funeral to ourselves today to die to sin and live to God, live to Christ, to have our eyes opened, to have our hearts set free, to have our souls experience the new birth, the miracle of regeneration. God, you are so good. You are so good to sinners like me. May nobody leave here without throwing anchor in Christ and accepting his invitation to come to him. And as we go out this week, Father, let us, those of us who have received salvation and forgiveness and eternal life, by grace, not because we're anything, by grace. Let us, Lord, live lives this week as we truly are dead to sin and alive to Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.